You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 29 with Julie Duffy Dillon. After sobbing in her boss's office 15 years ago, Julie Duffy Dillon, registered dietitian and PCOS expert, taught her last diet. Once she saw the anti-fat bias, she couldn't unsee it. Now Julie helps people with PCOS confidently tackle health concerns, moving forward without shame and blame. She teaches them how to burn their PCOS diet books while bringing clarity into their relationship with food and body. So naturally, we're talking about PCOS today. And Julie shares, obviously, like what is PCOS and all the things, but also some of the ideas that the medical community has imparted as truths that are potentially not truths? And how do you actually manage your PCOS in a way that is healthy for you? All right, let's get started. All right, Julie, let's do this. I'm excited. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm excited too. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Yeah. So today we're talking about PCOS, obviously a really large topic, so much information. Maybe even before we start diving into all of it, we can sort of say with what is PCOS? I think it's a really important thing to answer. And and honestly, answering this can be super powerful for someone's relationship with food when they have PCOS, because a lot of times people aren't ever really told what it even is, or they're just told that it has something to do with their fertility and that's it. And That's actually not, I mean, it does include fertility, but it's so much more. And PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is actually an endocrine disorder that starts in the brain. And it's technically a diagnosis of exclusion, which makes it really like this ambiguous kind of experience. And anyone listening who has PCOS, I know there was probably a moment or maybe even a year or two where you're like, do I really have this? Like, what is, you know, it just feels so like questionable because there's not this like exact thing, but basically because of this endocrine disorder, it results in like a set of symptoms that provoke a hormonal imbalance. And some people have certain hormonal imbalances and some people have other ones. And so that's why it ends up being different. And also why some people are told they have PCOS and then they go see another doctor and that doctor's like, no, no, you don't. And, and so much confusion, but At this point, there's this criteria called the Rotterdam criteria, and a person needs to meet two out of the three criteria in order to be diagnosed with PCOS. And one is some kind of irregular or absent periods. Another is clinical or biochemical signs of higher androgen levels. And an example of that would be testosterone, whether it's hair on the face or experiencing alopecia or hair loss in the head, or actually like getting lab work done and seeing like, oh, there's higher testosterone in here. And then the last one is evidence on ultrasound of multiple follicles on the ovaries. And so it's really funny because they're not even cysts. And you know, it's called polycystic ovarian syndrome. They're not even cysts. So that's the name. Yeah. And you don't even have to have these. Yeah. 
it's, it's so stupid. Right. And then you don't even have to have these like cis AKA follicles to get diagnosed with it anyway. <laughs> so you can so, have PCOS without the PCOS. Yeah. Oh, that's ridiculous. They're not C's anyway. Right. <laughs> they, it's like, right. They're, they're Poly, it's so it's P F O S. I don't know what, I don't know what the letters are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, I think again, this is why this is such an important question and it sounds so like from the beginning, but this is the part that so many people don't ever get. They're just like flippantly just told like, oh yeah, you have this PCOS thing. Come back when you're trying to get pregnant. So even the two out of the three, those are as a result of the endocrine issue. Okay. So how do we actually in this very non-accurate way get diagnosed? (laughs) So A lot of people get diagnosed because they don't have a period and they're like, something's going on. And so they go to the doctor and there are also some experiences that are really common with PCOS, like lots of fatigue, intense carb cravings, and then also facial hair when a person's not expecting to have facial hair, again, hair loss in the head. So those are some clinical experiences that people sometimes will bring to their doctor and kind of leads to then the hunt to figure out like what's going on. And again, if things are excluded, then PCOS would be the answer. What are some things that that would be excluded first? Those are things that are like, I don't ever retain in my brain, but there are other endocrine disorders, like types of pseudotumors and things like that, that people will get excluded to make sure they don't have that. You know, I'm thinking about like somebody who loses a period or has an irregular period, has intense carb cravings and potentially has some quote cysts, whatever you want to call it on their, <laughs> yeah. come up on an ultrasound that could happen for so many people with an eating disorder, just eating disorder, nothing to do with PCOS. This seems so terribly flawed. Oh my yes. God. Well, there is some really exact side to the cysts on the ovaries to help distinguish between hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS. I mean, this is getting into the weeds here, but this is really important because a lot of people are misdiagnosed with either one. And it depends on the the amount and the size of the follicles, those immature follicles that are called cysts that then determines if someone has hypothalamic amenorrhea or PCOS. And you can have both. I mean, it, it can happen, but the majority of people that I've worked with, they've been told they have PCOS and they really have hypothalamic amenorrhea. Just for reference, can you define what that means? Hypothalamic amenorrhea. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when someone is not taking in enough energy from food based on how active they are. And it results in losing a period. And this is something that will happen oftentimes when people are restricting intake that we'll see sometimes in eating disorders, of course. And the kind of classic stereotype is like a runner who loses their period will have hypothalamic amenorrhea, but you don't have to necessarily be this organized athlete. You could be someone who is moving your body more because you're a hairstylist and you're on your feet all day and you're not eating enough for the energy that you need causing the body just to not ovulate. So what happens is these cysts form and there's also differences though that helps to to rule out hypothalamic amenorrhea from PCOS with that is different with the androgen levels are different, but, but yeah. So like returning to a more appropriate amount of food, like, you know, eating enough really ends up helping to distinguish is it PCOS or is it hypothalamic amenorrhea? And sometimes that can take what, like a year to figure out. So that's not uncommon for people to like need this period to figure it out. Like, what is it really? 
When we talk about the fertility issue and PCOS, what is it that you're referring to? What actually happens? So uh, people with PCOS oftentimes will not ovulate. And that's because of the hormonal imbalance that occurs. And so all the hormones that are needed to coordinate ovulation and to make a good egg, that's going to stick. And if someone has PCOS, it can affect all those different hormones, one or many of them, and make the body not be able to like release one good egg. Instead, it'll have many immature follicles that may be releasing eggs or just not releasing any at all. And so what is technically referred to the infertility that's seen with PCOS is anovulatory infertility. It's actually the number one cause of anovulatory, anov- I can never say that word. And infertility. And so, yeah, like if someone is like, I never have a period. So how do I know when I can get pregnant? I know for me, I went through years and years of fertility treatments. And the thing you needed to know is like the day of your last period. You know? <laughs> exactly. And if you don't know that, or it's been like a year or something like that, then, you know, you don't know when you ovulate to be able to get pregnant. So let's just say, well, is it possible for someone with PCOS to get regular periods? Or you're saying that that's not Mm -hmm. possible? Because you only need two out of the three criteria. So someone could have totally normal, regular periods. And someone could actually be bleeding every month and not ovulating. You know, that happens too. But someone can be ovulating and then just have, not just, that's like a minimizer, isn't it? (laughs) But someone could have the, the biochemical signs of high androgens in the cysts on the ovaries too, you know, and get diagnosed that way. So, so would you say that it's sort of across the board that anybody who has this diagnosis, again, problematic, but anybody who's experiencing PCOS does have fertility issues? Is that too generalized? Not everyone does. And that's the thing about it. And the more that we know how to treat PCOS, the more likely that someone's not going to experience infertility because we, there's tools that are really more accessible now. They can be inaccessible because uh, sometimes people have to jump through hoops in order to be able to go to like a reproductive endocrinologist and things like that. But people can go on medications to help make a stronger egg and then also a medication to help make insulin levels lower so they can really kind of quickly start to be able to ovulate. Now, this is not for everyone with PCOS because there's going to be someone listening who's like, yeah, no, that did not work for me. Um, (laughs) But for many people, a a really um, small intervention can help. So yeah, not everyone is going to experience the infertility. That Well, I guess that's that's good news. There are treatments. I'll touch on that in a second. But something that I'm that's sticking out to me is that so many people that I've worked with, personal people, people that I know personally, who have PCOS talk about the idea of people with PCOS live in larger bodies or the PCOS causes weight gain. First of all, is that true? And if it is true, is it a correlation thing? Is it causation? What's the deal with that? You know, it's so hard to answer those kinds of questions because like PCOS healthcare and research, just like all the other healthcare and research that we find loaded with anti-fat bias. And so it's hard to really even discern that because first thing is like, well, the world, most people are in a higher weight body. If we're using the classification of BMI, you know, that most people aren't going to have a high BMI. And so like most people are going to have anything. You know, Um, (laughs) but what we know to be true with PCOS is you could be any size with it. Like size diversity is like the same as like the rest of the world. And so I'm like, well, then it's easy for me to say, well, then size can't cause it. You didn't say this, but like for many people, they're told that they gained weight and that's what caused the PCOS. And then as absolutely false. Yeah. 
People are told that all the time, every day, probably right at this moment. Someone's getting told that exact thing, like, oh, you gained too much weight and that caused your PCOS. And it really sucks because it is a condition that is passed down through family. So, and we know you can be any size with it and size doesn't cause it. Now for some people, and probably most people with PCOS, they do have high circulating insulin levels. And for many people with high insulin levels, it leads to the body, like not able to use food for energy and like saving and conserving because it's starving. And so for many people, weight gain is something that happens as their PCOS progresses. So is it um, a symptom maybe, or a symptom of a change in the PCOS? I think that that's going to be true for some people, but not everybody. Yeah. Well, what I'm learning is that there's a not everybody answer to all of this, and we cannot ever generalize, especially with this. I'm thinking about this one person that talks forever about how, because of her PCOS, she has a hard time losing weight, which, you know, problematic statement, period. But I guess this is sort of what you're talking to in that the insulin levels are higher. Sort of reminds me of my limited understanding of diabetes, maybe type 2, in that, well, maybe just because you said insulin and that's all I know about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it kind of connects. And there is some research that's connecting, like, and this is where I'm like, gosh, I wish I would have paid attention more in my genetics classes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah. We were absent that day. There are some similarities with people who come from families with diabetes and PCOS. There's like some similarities there with genetics. Like that's where I'm like, oh, I don't know the name for that. And we also know that 50% of people with PCOS do end up having prediabetes or diabetes by the time they're 40. And just like the way someone moves through the experience of going from not having diabetes to having diabetes with PCOS is different than someone without PCOS. And the difference is these high circulating insulin levels are so much higher because it's like a result of this endocrine disorder. Like carb cravings are so much more intense and fatigue is much more intense. It's just a different kind of progression. And eventually, you know, as the human body experiences, like the more insulin that's getting pumped out, eventually the pancreas just starts to wane and like, it can't keep up with the demand. And then the progression to diabetes happens and insulin just loses its like sharpness to be able to like break up the nutrient to make it into glucose. So yeah, that's, that's, I know you said something on how it brought up diabetes for you, but there is definitely a connection with the two. And you know, your, I don't know if you said it's your friend or a colleague with PCOS talking about like, it's in the way of me being able to lose weight. Well, I mean, it it is problematic kind of statement because it is like the biggest recommendation that this person has been told to manage their condition is, and they're just doing what they're told. I mean, you and I know that they're just trying to comply to be able to like access what they need. But when someone has really high insulin levels, and this is what I experienced as a clinician, and this is why I started working with PCOS. I was working with people, like my main area of expertise as a dietitian was working with people with severe and enduring anorexia. That that was like my favorite type of like experience to work with for years and years. You and, are a unicorn. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, it was a it was a finite amount of time. But <laughs> but it was something that like I just was seeing all the time. And I kept seeing people with PCOS who also had this kind of experience, although they weren't always diagnosed with anorexia, no surprise, because their body weight wasn't low enough. And what I basically, it was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, it took me longer than it should have, but you know, after someone says that they're eating X, Y, Z amount of calories, and then you really need like 10 times that 
and their weight's not going down and no one believes them. I mean, you only need to hear it a few times to realize, oh, there's something to this. So yeah, like PCOS and its higher insulin levels will, for many people, make calories in, calories out, not work at all, especially if they've been doing it for a while, which is something that we also would see too. I mean, I know I saw this with people with anorexia without PCOS too. Like the first five times that they were experimenting with like restricting, it would do something, but then it slowly just would like not quote work anymore, you know, and they'd have to do more. And same thing with people with PCOS. And I think there's more people probably with anorexia and PCOS than is that people even can imagine because this yeah, is just and maybe like, we would call like it like the said. atypical anorexia thing. Yeah, which is I mean, I, th- I have anorexia. a feeling it's such a, a strong majority of people with PCOS have at some point experienced anorexia just to be able to jump through the hoops to like get what they need from their doctor. Well, are you saying that some doctors require them to be at a certain weight in order for them to provide some fertility treatments or oh, treatment yeah. in general? I mean, there's people who um, in the UK that the NHS requires a certain BMI to even qualify to get reproductive medicine. Um, oh, and, you know, I live in the US, you know, there's a lot of reproductive endocrinologists, yeah, who will just not even let you make an appointment unless your BMI is below a certain number. Um, gender affirming surgery, same thing. People are not able to get like life saving surgery because their BMI is too high. And um, yeah, it really is awful. I mean, that's like not even a big enough word. Yeah. And I mean, we're sort of like touching on this. So let's like jump in there. PCOS eating disorder is unfortunately really, really common. What do you think it stems from? Like, is it just this piece of they're being told to lose weight and then it's a slippery slope? Is it a little bit more complex than that? Yeah. I I think it's a bunch of different things. I think there's physiology behind it that is, will lead people quicker to like a eating disorder kind of like scenario where you know, I've mentioned these carb cravings. And when someone has really high circulating insulin, whether they're eating enough or not, um, if the insulin levels are going higher and higher, um, the body's not able to use that food for energy. And so it sends cravings like, oh, go eat that loaf of bread right now, or we're going to die. Like it's it's like an intense primal craving. And then if you have that, and then you go to the doctor or your dietitian, and they're like, oh yeah, you need to eat less. And so you're like dealing with these like hormonal shifts that are making these intense cravings. And then you're also pushed to lose weight and try harder for many people that ends up provoking either, like we were talking about earlier, like are restricting and other components that look like anorexia, or for many people, it also can shift into more of a bulimia or binge eating disorder experience. And I think if the push to lose weight wasn't as strong, there would still be a higher risk with PCOS because of the hormonal imbalances that are disrupted with how we regulate, how we like crave food and how we feel full and satisfied and just hunger in general. That's, those are all hormones that coordinate that. I think there's like 200 different hormones involved. And so, yeah, if there's a hormonal imbalance, then those are going to be affected. So I think it's both. I think it's like the body and also the culture that someone with PCOS is living in that pushes them towards a perfect scenario to experience an eating disorder. Yeah. So if we think about this, we'll call it a quote diet. It's an eating disorder, but dieting, the idea of trying to lose weight, we know it's harmful, period. How could it do harm for somebody with PCOS? How could like long-term quote dieting or restricting cause harm? Yeah. So starting with just the physical side of it, living with PCOS, there's two big components that I always keep in mind that I want to help 
a person kind of connect with tools to manage to prevent further disease. And one is the insulin that we talked about, and the other is inflammation. Inflammation, of course, is its like own diet culture buzzword, but I was going to say, what, what does that mean? Inflammation. I know. Well, we all experience inflammation and we need it to stay alive. And people with PCOS have been found to be in this like pro-inflammatory state. It's like this chronic pro-inflammatory state because of all the hormonal imbalance. The body has to do more. It's tired. And what we know about inflammation besides it being like the diet culture magnet is that it predicts disease. That's why it has attention. So I want my clients, the people I've worked with with PCOS, I've always wanted them to like, okay, let's figure out what we can do to help lower inflammation and lower insulin. Well, dieting can help that in the beginning. We have lots of six week and 12 week long research studies in PCOS and dieting that show like those all get lowered. 12 week is considered long-term research in PCOS. So if you read like a headline, you're like long-term PCOS study shows that this diet helps lower insulin. Look at it. It's probably only 12 weeks, but we don't have any long-term data on dieting and PCOS. Although we do have in 2018, there was like this huge consortium of researchers that came together to like go through all the research on PCOS. And they stated there has been zero diets found yet to help people with PCOS long-term, but then it goes. So just pick anyone. (laughs) Oh, I was like, oh, cool. Who would have thunk? Oh, great. Oh, yeah, that is like, Want dang, <laughs> way to stick it into the weight-centric BS that we keep having. Anyway, so yeah, long-term dieting unfortunately makes insulin and inflammation worse. Pushing people with PCOS to focus on weight and to diet, it may initially do something, but long-term it doesn't, whether the person stays on the diet or not. And then of course, like emotionally speaking, going through a diet and then like having to try harder and harder and harder how that is going to predict binge eating for PCOS. That's something we've seen in the PCOS literature. So like the more one diets, the more likely they're going to experience binge eating and binge eating disorder. And again, we don't have a lot of research on anorexia and PCOS just because I don't think people are looking for it. So your risk of experiencing like decades long recovery from an eating disorder is more with dieting too. Um, And then also like as the therapist, I'm like, I know this is like your wheelhouse, but like what about how that affects relationships and quality of life and jobs and things you choose to experience? And it gets in the way of all that stuff too. Yeah. So it definitely affects negatively, we can say. Yes. Yes. Definitely the long-term. I know that you had mentioned something about treatment earlier, so I don't want to be like all dark and gloom. For somebody with PCOS, what is there to do, even just on an endocrine level. We'll talk about like the diet piece in a second, but treatment wise, what's out there? So if you can connect with someone who is like a weight inclusive, weight inclusive endocrinologist, or just regular doctor to help you to consider different tools. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about the food part in a second. So there's lots that you can do in that area, but there are supplements, there's medications, and basically it's helping you to find tools, whether it is through food or medications or supplements that help lower insulin levels. By doing that, by lowering insulin, it's going to make a person feel more energized. The cravings are going to go down. Ovulation will improve if fertility is of peace. It's also going to lower androgen levels, like insulin and androgens kind of like to hang out together. So by lowering insulin, it also lowers androgens. So then things like excess facial hair, if that's something that someone doesn't like, 
starts to go down as well. There's also dermatologists have wonderful medications too that they will often prescribe to also help that will contribute to lowering androgen levels too. So that's something that that I would say, like if you can connect with someone who can support you in that way, it's so great because then you can actually like not worry about distraction of the diet stuff, really like, okay, what can I do to help my body not be as inflamed and lower insulin levels? So then I can prevent these diseases like we're talking about. Do you have any idea? I know this is not like your scope, but per se, but these medications or supplements, do they then cause their own side effects and then the person has to deal with, or they're sort of mild? You know, I think that like depends, but I can just name from literature I've read, but of course, always listen to your own in-person healthcare provider, (laughs) not me on the podcast. (laughs) Disclaimer. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a disclaimer. But, you know, birth control pills are a really common prescription for people with PCOS. It's often like the first thing that people are prescribed. And if someone has really heavy periods or never has a period, those are things that are really important. You know, you don't want to like, if you want to be able to go to work and you can't because your periods are too heavy, birth control is a great option and it can be free or very low cost. Plus it also can help prevent getting pregnant, which is also great if that's something that a person is wanting. And we have found that long-term use of birth control pills can also contribute to higher insulin levels. So again, it's like, uh, it just kind of depends. That may not be a big deal if endometrial cancer is like something that runs in your family and not getting a period, it's going to put you at higher risk for. So yeah, there's that. And there's another one, metformin. A lot of people are on that. Metformin is one that's often prescribed with diabetes too, but it's considered an insulin sensitizer. And it's another one that's really low cost. And it has been around for a really long time. It will, for many people, cause a lot of GI distress in the beginning. If you are taking it, make sure you take it with a meal. It can't be just with like some saltines. Like it needs to be with a meal. And it's one that for a lot of people helps them to be able to ovulate and they can get pregnant. And again, it's really accessible, at least in the United States, but it is one that requires the liver to be able to like process it. So it's like adding that into it. And for some people with PCOS, they also have irritable bowel syndrome and metformin and some types of IBS do not mix well. (laughs) So it can be just not an option for them. And, you know, the, the other thing with, with metformin that can be problematic is long-term use is also associated with low B12 levels and B12 is important. If we have low B12 for a long time, it can cause neuropathy and irreversible neuropathy, which, you know, nobody wants that. So if someone's on metformin, it's like, just go on a B12 supplement right now and it'll help cover you just in case. But yeah, those are the ones that are the most common that I see people getting prescribed at this point. And the risk associated is separate for each person. And based on your medical history, your family history, et cetera, et cetera, that'll determine what to do. Mm -hmm. So let's unpack the diet piece. So if the entire world is saying just lose weight, or most of the medical world is saying lose weight in order to manage your PCOS, what do you suggest would actually be helpful? Okay. I'm so glad you asked this because first and foremost, more than anything else, the very first thing is you have to be eating enough. And I know that we are led to believe all of us, anyone listening, I don't care who you are. We have all been like totally duped into thinking we don't need as much as we think we need. And you may think you're eating enough, but you probably aren't. So make sure you're eating enough food. And I say that because if you have have this condition that's causing this hormonal imbalance and your body has to do all this extra work, 
that's causing that inflammation. And part of helping your body to not have to experience all that heaviness of like all that extra work is you need to feed it in order to like get stuff done. Right. And so that's the first thing. And for a lot of people that could take a good year to recover, you know, whether a person's experiencing an eating disorder or recovering from diet culture, both really connecting with like, I need to make sure I'm eating enough, having three meals, having snacks and eating till you're actually satisfied. And that is something that most people with PCOS have not been really given permission to do. Food is not supposed to be pleasurable or satisfactory when you have PCOS, it's all about eating less. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, as a dietitian, something that as dietitians were trained to do is something called medical nutrition therapy, which is basically the interventions that we help people experiment with to treat disease. And most of the ones that people talk about with PCOS are like taking away it's not not a surprise that carbs are like the thing that people are told with PCOS to eliminate. And I think that is horrible, horrible advice because of those carb cravings. And like, where are we in the world where carbs are not a part of like a staple? And it's like so much more affordable. It has good shelf life and it gives us energy and fiber and nutrients. So what I encourage people to do instead of taking things away is experimenting with like, what can I add to what I'm eating to help me. And for as many people who have PCOS, we know very little about it. So really the data that you have about like how your body experiences certain foods is going to be the most important. And if you're not eating enough, it won't really be that helpful. It's like not until you really are getting enough food that you can get this kind of insight. Some of the things that people end up adding are more fat, fiber, protein. Like there may be times a day where you find, oh, I need to make sure I really get a significant amount of protein at this meal. And when I don't, I crash an hour later. It's basically a lot of experiments to gather the data that a person needs in order to figure out what they need more of. So you're saying in terms of food, add more in that helps you feel more energized and just better as opposed to take this out, don't eat this. Right, right. Exactly. What would you say about the cravings piece? Like if I'm craving something, does that mean that I'm not eating enough? Is that completely separate? How do you work with the cravings in this? Yes. Cravings and PCOS are so interesting because depending on what type of craving it is, for me as a clinician, gives me information. So if someone is experiencing cravings all the time, like 24 hours a day or most of the time, or they're waking up in the middle of the night having a craving... And again, they're they're not just like, oh, I have a hankering for some chocolate. It's like these primal cravings, you know? That to me is a sign that the body is like giving you some really good information of like your insulin levels are really, really high. And having tools, which may include instead of just like the nutrition piece, that's when sometimes I'll be like, let's see if we can get you into a doctor to help you get on metformin. Let's try some supplements while you're trying to add more food and all that stuff because it feels horrible to be having those kind of cravings all the time. They're super distracting, especially if someone has a complicated relationship with food. A person's already thinking about food, but then they have these intense messages like to go eat a loaf of bread. It's a lot. So sometimes we'll bypass some of the adding things. It's still important, but like, let's get on some medication to help you to feel more at home in your body. And then we can kind of help do these other things. But then as a person finds tools for them, that helps lower insulin. And again, it could be medications, it could be sleep, it could be supplements. They start to go down and then people then start to report to me kind of like random cravings. So I have a thing, oh, it's like, if you're experiencing constant cravings, this is what 
your body's telling you. But if you're having random cravings, it's something like then needing to pause and like, okay, what, what's going on? And it could be that I'm having more stress today. I didn't sleep well last night. We didn't talk about sleep at all, but like sleep is a big issue with PCOS or I didn't eat enough at breakfast. Wait, let me pause you for a second. Sleep is a big issue in, in what sense? Because sleep is coordinated by hormones. It is a really common disorder. It's 75% of people with PCOS probably have some kind of sleep disorder. And insulin is a big part of sleep too. So that's why like lowering insulin probably helps people sleep better. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's not just like put your phone away and you'll sleep okay. No, I mean like maybe this will do something, but I think like all the interventions, especially in like self-help and therapies and things like they can be helpful for PCOS, but I think a lot of times they're just not, it's just not enough. We didn't talk either about like mood disorders in PCOS, that there's a really high rate of experiencing a mood disorder, especially anxiety and sleep anxiety in particular is really common. And so, yeah, like putting the phone down can help, but really helping a person to be able to eat enough and then have tools to help lower insulin will help take the edge off that anxiety to then be able to to access some of those other things. So yeah, it's a lot. It's really hard to live with this condition that most people don't even know what it is. Yeah, well, in terms of either prognosis or just living with PCOS, what could it look like once someone has sort of like addressed the quote imminent threats? I don't know what to call them. The things that are going on right now that are not fun. What does it look like down the line when it's managed and it's not, you know, I'm losing the word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean? I think I do know. So this is where I'm going to be like super depressing, but then also not totally depressing. Okay. Hooray. (laughs) (laughs) So PCOS is a chronic condition, so there's no cure. So it is lifelong. It doesn't go away when someone goes through menopause. And that's where like, sometimes I get really Really? angry DMs. Yes. (laughs) So... With, Cause they're angry at you. Cause yeah, I were just angry. I, mean, I can take it. It's okay. I don't have PCOS. Oh, okay. Bring it. I'm okay. But yeah, like it, that's what I think a lot of people have been misled to believe that once I go through menopause, it's gone. Again, it's not a condition just from the ovaries. It's like a brain. It starts in the brain and it's an endocrine disorder. And it is something that because it's a chronic condition, it's probably always going to get a little worse. And the more we can help you avoid weight cycling, avoid dieting, the more you and your body can stay like together. So then when you do get those random cravings or you start to feel more fatigued, you can pull out the tools that work for you to help manage it. People with PCOS who I've known now for over 10 years that I've worked with, what I have noticed is they need to have ironclad boundaries. Like you don't mess with their boundaries in order for them to be able to manage stress, to manage the fatigue, and to get enough sleep and eat enough, they just have to end up doing a lot more self-care. And with that, it's pretty powerful how people then can continue to move forward and just kind of like staying up on it. So then when different symptoms happen and pop up, they can kind of address it instead of avoiding it or you know trying to trick it, which I think is kind of what people are taught to do at this point. And then also people with PCOS can be amazing advocates in other areas of like weight inclusive care because rejecting diets and avoiding weight cycling is so important for a person's health living with PCOS, like how they end up up educating healthcare providers ends up trickling down for everybody else, which is just so amazing, you know, to see how 
ends up benefiting everybody in the community. So it shouldn't be anyone's job, but if it becomes, it then it's really helpful. No. It should not be their job. Well, we can talk about this all day. And obviously there's a lot more information. Before I let you go, can you just share with our listeners where they can find you and where they can find more information about PCOS? Sure. So I would just go to my website. It's julieduffydillon.com. And as I say this, I'm like, I'm not sure when this will be released. So if that comes up and it says... Um, yeah, there's no website like that. Then just go to juliedillonrd.com and that'll take you there. Um, in the middle of like shifting it around a little bit. And if you like podcasts and obviously you do, since you're listening to this one, I have a podcast that's called find your food voice. And we talk about PCOS and lots of other things too. So check that out and hopefully I can help. Yeah. And you're on social media too, aren't you? Yep. I'm on Instagram mostly, of course. And so find you, um, (laughs) Food Voice RD is my handle on um, Instagram. All right. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time. <laughs>